What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting with Dan Feldman. Dan is a registered dietitian and a personal trainer with a master's degree in human nutrition. He's also a natural competitive powerlifter. Dan has a strong passion for making nutrition research more understandable and accessible for health practitioners, which is what he does really, really well on his social media, so throw him a follow. Last week, I had Jesse on the podcast, and we talked a lot about body image, and I feel like there are a lot of assumptions that this is something that only women suffer from or only women deal with. And Dan has a lot of good information and really great perspective about how body dysmorphia, disordered eating, and general body image discussion goes under-discussed in the male population. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about where does this fear of carbs come from, which is a conversation that I know you guys will love. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Dan, what's going on, man? Pleasure to have you here. Yeah, pleasure to uh, finally meet you. I think we've been following each other for a while on Instagram, so it's Really nice to finally sort of, you know, get to talk and uh, e-meet, I suppose. Absolutely. It's one of the beautiful things about social media is that connecting with people that like, like-minded like people or not like-minded people, but people in general. It's awesome. Sure. For sure, man. So like you said, I've been following you for a long time. I've seen your content grow into what it is today. And um, for the people, my listeners who don't follow you, why don't you give us just like a background of who you are, how you got into the space and kind of what you're most passionate about right now? Yeah, thank you, man. Um, so my name is Dan Feldman. I am a registered dietitian. I have my master's degree in human nutrition. Uh, I'm a certified personal trainer. I am a competitive powerlifter, and I'm also a nutrition research nerd, uh, you could say. So I spend a lot of my time, you know, um, uh, disseminating nutrition research, putting it on my uh, my Instagram, or just just uh, you know, kind of going through the methods of, of um, you know, new research studies and whatnot and trying to disseminate that information. Um, I'm also a nutrition coach beyond being a dietitian. So I see clients online, um, some, you know, training clients as well. So it's really sort of a mixture of what I do between disseminating information and actually uh, working with clients one-on-one. Excellent. Yeah, very cool. And I've seen that you're a lot of the information that you tend to be disseminating, at least at this point in your, in your careers, a lot of stuff around like body dysmorphia specifically amongst the male population. And last week I had Jesse Jean on the podcast and we talked a lot about body dysmorphia and body image in general and kind of how to become, how to work on that more, more so. And I feel like there's a lot of assumptions or at least I, I had a lot of feedback that it felt like we were talking about women and it almost felt like, and, and I don't think we were, I listened to it back and it didn't sound like we were talking exclusively about women. We weren't. Um, but there's this assumption that women are the only ones who deal with body dysmorphia and body image issues. And, um, while I will say before I throw it to you is that I, I do probably think that women have the shorter end of the stick just from a man, decades of shit targeted marketing around like societal expectations. But I do think it's, it goes under discussed in the male population. And, and, and I feel like that's something you've been talking about a lot. And that's kind of why I wanted to have you on. Yeah, man, absolutely. I mean, I had gone through my own struggles with body dysmorphia, which I can uh, talk about shortly. But yeah, I just, um, you know, as you mentioned, um, <clears throat> body dysmorphia, um, uh, disordered eating, things like that, societal, um, you know, expectations and whatnot. It's definitely more difficult for women. Women, as you mentioned, have the shorter end of the stick, just pressures to be thin and pressures from the media. Absolutely, it's worse for women. So, so you know, don't get things twisted women have it worse. Um, but men, uh, uh, pe people who aren't women, like men also deal with it as well, you know, and, and I think it's something that, while it is getting talked about more in general, a lot of that talk is focusing around women and to some degree, you know, rightly so. But I do think that there is not much of a male perspective on it up until this point. And as someone who has gone through disordered eating, body dysmorphia and whatnot, um, I found it pretty difficult at times to, to not really have that male perspective. And, you know, I found whenever I uh, post on my Instagram about my my story or about things related to body dysmorphia or body image, um, I get a fair amount of feedback in my DMs from guys who are saying like, hey, yeah, man, like that, I could have written that, you know, and, and uh, just very appreciative of that that kind of male perspective. So it's, um, I think, uh, kind of a, a gap in the industry right now that I'm, you know, trying to fill and, and hopefully just kind of uh, show other guys who might be dealing with this, who might kind of feel weird about it. They're like, uh, like, isn't it only women that deal with this? Hopefully to just kind of show them like, hey, 
other guys deal with this. Yeah, validate. I've dealt with it. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And just to hopefully share my experience in that way. Awesome. Um, yeah. So why don't we, for starters, give a definition to body dysmorphia? And then I'd love to hear your personal experience with going through that. Right. Absolutely. I don't have like the official definition in front of me. So I don't want to say like, this is the definition. Um, but I mean, I would just say in general, it's seeing yourself is in a way that's different from objective reality. I don't know. I don't know if you have like a, a, a official definition that you could kind of put up there. Cause I don't want to sort of give bad information in that way, or if you want to pull that up. Um, but at least when I'm talking about it, I'm generally referring to, you know, when you see yourself or you see your body in a way that, that doesn't fit with objective reality. And I think it's a pretty common phenomenon. I don't know if you're, you're kind of yeah, that now. No, I, I pulled it up. So I think you were kind of spot on. It's a body dysmorphic disorder. It's a mental health disorder in which you can't stop thinking about one or more perceived defects or flaws within your appearance, a flaw that appears minor or can't be seen by others. So I think that you're kind of referencing of, you know, something that you're seeing that might not reflect objective reality. And, and I think that that objective reality is almost subjective, um, yeah. which is kind of a yeah. slippery slope there. But yeah, and it says, but you may feel uh, so embarrassed, ashamed or anxious that you may avoid social situations. Yeah, yeah. And I do think it's it's good that you sort of pulled that uh, definition up, because I do think in this space, when we talk about body dysmorphia, when we talk about body image, when we talk about disordered eating, there are a lot of terms, just generally speaking, that people kind of throw out there where they, they don't necessarily know what those terms mean. A great example being intuitive eating. A lot of people, you know, I see a lot of people in, in the fitness space, bodybuilders, whatnot, uh, saying things about intuitive eating without actually having read the book. Um, I'm, and I don't want to go too much into intuitive eating because I'm not an expert on it, but just, just to kind of, just so that we understand what we're talking about. I think it, it's, it's very helpful. Yeah. I think that's a perfect example as well, by the way, that's like the example I would give as well, where people have a, just a vastly misunder, misunder, a vast misunderstanding of like what the actual definition is something like intuitive eating, right? Which we can, whatever, we can dive into that into, into a bit, but why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about like your experience with it personally and what you've seen kind of in the space once you started posting a little bit more about it and maybe is there is there research on this topic yeah so uh i guess just getting a bit into my story so i and, and this is probably not an unfamiliar thing to a lot of your listeners fitness folk i was kind of a chubby kid uh growing up like around eight nine years old um you know i was objectively probably on the heavier end of what would be considered healthy um, I was pretty self-conscious about it, got teased now and then, but a lot of the issues were more kind of in my head. And pretty early on, I had, I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I had what, what would definitely be considered uh, disordered eating uh, symptoms. At a very young age, like eight years old, nine years old, um, 10 years old. Um, and I spent a lot of time wanting to lose weight and wanting to get skinny um you know thinking like oh you know maybe girls will like me or they said that or there's something wrong with me because i'm heavy and, and it just really preoccupied it occupied a lot of uh space in my head you know even at that very young age and you know i did if you were to like look at pictures of me i did kind of i don't know if like grow out of it is the right word but but objectively by the by the age of like 13 14 you would look at me and you wouldn't have thought that I was someone that had a weight problem. You know, I just, with puberty, with growing, I sort of leaned out, whatever you want to call it. But I, I, I only know that now, sort of looking back retrospectively, you know, at the time, I didn't really notice that, you know, that, that kind of seeing myself as, as being heavier than is ideal kind of stuck with me um, throughout that time. Um, and, you know, one this is kind of jumping a bit, but, but just kind of when I'm thinking about the kind of 13 year old, 14 year old, uh, time period, as I mentioned, I had disordered eating behaviors. And I remember in seventh grade, um, we had health class and, you know, in middle school and, uh, we were on the topic of eating disorders and I'll never forget my teacher. And I'm sure she meant well, you know, but, uh, she, uh, said that, you know, eating disorders, you know, um, anorexia, bulimia, that kind of, those kind of things almost always are only um, in women. And she specifically said the only time that men would have those things is if, um, you know, if there's a guy that's cutting weight for wrestling or something like that, then they might have uh, disordered eating. 
other than that, it's just something that affects women. And that, that's just something that has stuck with me, you know, 13, 14 years later that I do sort of want to kind of highlight. Um, but anyway, you know, around that time kind of grew into my weight, still had these disordered eating behaviors. I would, you know, do things like trying to go the day without eating. And then by lunchtime, I would get hungry. And, you know, I had like binge eating episodes, things like that. Um, just, just really thinking about my weight a lot, uh, that continued, you know, into high school and then into college and in college, you know, finally sort of having more control over my food environment, I actually started, you know, tracking my calories and, and reduced my calories and, you know, was able to eat in a calorie deficit for an extended period of time. And, you know, when I, when I started uh, college, I was about 148 pounds and I'm five foot four. I'm a, I'm a little dude. So it, that's, that's a, it was a pretty like normal body weight for my frame. And then in March of my freshman year, I got down to 125 and, you know, you could see it. I, I posted on my Instagram pictures of what I looked like then. And, and I looked pretty ill. I mean, I, I was just very, very, very skinny and gaunt and pale. I did not look very healthy. Um, and what's crazy is at the time when I was like 125 or so pounds, I remember thinking that I still had like five more pounds to lose because I didn't have visible abs, you know? Um, so, and I really just wanted that, that six pack, you know, I, I just had, had the image of, you know, male models, Brad Pitt, um, you know, or, or what have sure. you just, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Of just sort of wanting that six pack. And I had read somewhere online, like, Hey, if you just get your body fat low enough, you'll have the six pack. And that was just sort of in my head. And, and I, I couldn't see the fact that I was like, just really sickly looking, but all I saw was I don't have abs. So I'm fat, you know? And again, I, I didn't looking back, it's like, like, wow, that's crazy. But when you're in that, it, you, you don't, see that you know um so that was freshman year and then over the next few years I, my weight kind of went back to a more kind of healthiest healthy-ish range but i was still kind of constantly kind of trying to lose weight you know I, I was reading more about like bodybuilding or really kind of following people on youtube who were in that kind of bodybuilding lifting kind of space um so i you know started lifting and i gained some muscle but i was constantly uh, in a calorie deficit trying to cut. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to cut for the next three months and then I'll be able to bulk finally. And I would just say that like continuously. And it went on like that throughout college and throughout, you know, my freshman year of grad school as well. And then in mid 2017, um, and I had been lifting, you know, throughout this time with moderate progress. Um, I, had like a pretty bad leg or piriformis injury or something lifting and couldn't live for a while. And I'm not sure what it was at the time, but something clicked there that made me realize like, you know what, what would happen if I like actually ate enough calories that my body needs? Like, or what if I ate like in like a maintenance or even a surplus? Like a crazy like, concept. What, <laughs> I know, I know. And like, and I, I really, I was kind of like, uh, but like, am I going to like gain a million pounds of fat then? Like, I don't know, like maybe I should reverse really slowly into that. So I kind of like eased myself up to, and again, I'm, I'm five foot four, so I'm not, I'm a pretty small dude, but I, you know, was trying to eat below 2000 calories, which is, was not enough for me. But, um, then I was like, all right, maybe I'll try like 2200, 2300. And I kind of inched it up. And what I found was that I put 50 pounds on like all of my lifts like pretty quickly like it was a dramatic shift um you know and i started to look better even though you know my weight went up slightly but it, i mean it was like objectively like i looked a lot better just just with my shirt off or whatever even though without abs i was just just really getting more muscular and then um by the following like march or so of 2018 you know, um, powerlifting, I, I was really kind of getting better at the main lifts, with, you know, deadlift, squat and bench press. Um, and then I, I really, I think, started to dedicate myself to powerlifting and really started to set powerlifting goals. And what that did was put myself out of my own head. And the focus was no longer achieving a particular appearance. The goal became external. The goal became 
um, you know, trying to just get really strong. And sort of, you know, soon after that, I scheduled my first uh, or signed up for my first USAPL meet and was more focused on that, um, you know, and then started focusing on like, like grad school stuff with reading research and getting better at reading research. So my, my focus sort of went from I have to get a six pack to I want to get stronger. I'm going to get better at reading research. Like I want to do all these external things that are not related to how I look. And then that, I don't want to say it cured my body dysmorphia. So per, per se, cause I'm, I, I still, you know, still have my bad moments, but, but that uh, drastically improved my self-esteem, my body image, everything. Once, the, once that shift kind of happened, um, everything got better. And now, like, I mean, I have not gone through a fat loss phase since then. And like, I, I'm still like, you know, I, I look pretty jacked in my opinion. Like, like, you know, I, I, um, you know, I don't have a six pack, but, um, you know, I look, I look quite good. I, I can eat a lot of food, like pretty and like life flexibly. Yeah. Life, life is better. My, my lifts are, are great, you know, and, and exactly life is about, is really a lot better. So I know that was kind of a long we know you very well now, Journey, it's good. but, but yes, that <laughs> everything, my life story is now on the table. And that is, is, you know, um, what kind of brought me to doing this now, because, you know, I started to share some aspects of that story in like 2019, specifically about trying to achieve a six pack as a male, which is something like, I think it's kind of something we know about, like we kind of know in the back of our minds but people aren't really talking about that guys aren't really talking about that that much um and i started to kind of talk about it and people were like hey like this is like other people should be talking about this other people should be seeing it so you know uh, as you mentioned like you know I, I on social media i've started to emphasize more um you know different aspects of body image my own story and, and things that have helped me and things that'll help other people so that's kind of driven me to kind of make the content i make now and I don't, I don't even know how this is going to come out, but just having worked with a lot of clients over the past decade, like if you've never had a six pack, let's say, I'll just tell, I'll just say this on the air here. Like the pursuit of getting visible abs for most people who've never had them and maybe aren't naturally lean in the abdomen area is probably not juice that's worth the squeeze. Like it's, I'm not saying it's not fun to have visible abs, like fine, whatever you can want, whatever you want. I just, I talk a lot about trade-offs and I talk a lot about people who fill out my application and they say what they want and visible abs is like one of the most common things that people say. And just know that to get visible abs, you need to do a disproportionate amount of work. You need to do more work for less benefit and you need to do it for a long time. And that's not to say that you can't want that thing. It's just because it is put up on this pedestal. And one of my, one of my mentors, Jordan Syed, like says all the time, like nobody gives a fuck if you have a six pack, like they don't, nobody does. Um, and even if they did to get a six pack takes a really disproportionate amount of, of effort to return on that investment. Uh, um, and just hearing you say that, I was like, this, this guy's killing himself for something that thinks. And I posted uh, on my Instagram today, that was like a, a list of things that will drastically change when you lose that last bit of fat. And it was nothing, like literally nothing. Like if you get all the way down to being super lean, you have a six pack now, like nothing about your life is going to change except for the fact that you are probably extremely, extremely lean, almost maybe to a point that's unsustainable. Some people can sustain certain levels of leanness and some people can't. But man, for people who've never had a six pack, if you're listening to this and you really want a six pack, that's okay. That's cool. You can want that. But just hear me that it's you're going to, it's a terrible ROI on your effort and you're going to have to get extremely, extremely lean and you can want that. But like you said, it might not be juice that's worth the squeeze. Yeah, exactly. And especially if your goal is aesthetics. Um, and I know it's, it's sort of a weird conversation to kind of talk about body image and then to also talk about aesthetic goals. It's, it's sort of a, a, but, but if we are going to kind of talk about just generally speaking aesthetics, um, you know, to get kind of the, the traditional aesthetic physique, if you want to call that in guys generally would be a, a, a muscular physique or, or gaining appreciable amounts of muscle. And, you know, I mean, I guess it's one thing if you're very well trained, but if you're somewhat newish to lifting weights, um, you know, trying to get a six pack and trying to constantly eat in the calorie deficit to do that will take you further from that. It's going to be very difficult to actually build muscle and you know get the physique that you're probably after because you know when people think of six packs they probably don't think of like a, a super skinny kind of starving looking person who also has a six pack they right. probably think of like a very muscular 
male model who's got the delts, who has the chest, who also has the six pack. But, you know, it, it, it would probably behoove you to really focus your early training career on building muscle um, most of the time to kind of really get that muscular foundation and, and you know, striving I for that, that six pack would, would probably take you further from that. So even from that perspective. Just circle back around to something you had said. It's like, I'm, I'm always interested in how do we get the most out of clients and how do we get them to enjoy the process the most? And a lot of times when we are super myopic about our body and we're so tunnel visioned on how we look, often we miss out on the enjoyment factor. And, and sometimes we're so focused on it that it's actually becomes in, something that impedes us actually being able to get it. And what you had said is something that I've said on the podcast. I've had people say, it's like, and I want to ask you is, and you, you kind of said it is having performance-based goals. It might, it might not cure your body dysmorphia, but it certainly distracts you and it de and it, it devalues and, and, and importantly, so it devalues the way you look and, and elevates the celebration of what your body can do. And a lot of times the irony is you also get the aesthetic that you're after. And so I think that something I just wanted to highlight is like, my suspicion is that having those performance-based goals and focusing more on, and you had said your lift numbers went up. You didn't tell me about how big your delts got or how big your back got. You're like, my lifts went up. Um, having those performance-based goals is, is something that I think as coaches intuitively we understand is something that can be really powerful to get people out of that mindset of super, super myopic about hyper-focused on, on their body image. Um, do we see research on that? Is that something that we see done in, in studies where we have groups who are externally focused and groups that are internally focused or groups that are focused on the lifts of groups are focused on progress photos? And, and is that, is that something that's currently been done is being done or, or do we need to do studies like that to prove that people should kind of embrace more of these performance goals? Yeah. So generally speaking, um, uh, there is research from what I remember that that indicates that just looking at, at goals in general, um, focusing on the process rather than the end result will consistently uh, lead to more sustainable behavior change. I was just reading the uh, paper the other day. I don't remember what the modality was specifically, but they had two groups of people, one that, that was generally focused to just um, look at their kind of just focus on their goals. The other group was more focused on the process of getting them and just focused on, you know, doing activity that they enjoy, um, you know, and just really focusing on, on that component of it. And the process oriented uh, group had superior results. Um, I'll try and find that because it's, it's that, that paper specifically, but it is something that we do consistently see in behavior change research, uh, research that, a process-oriented approach is way more sustainable because you can't, you know, you can't predict goals. I mean, you can uh, um, put in systems, you can put systems in place that can bring you closer to those goals. Um, but, and actually, um, you know, one of the books I'm, I'm in the process of reading now is um, uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear, and he talks about this as well. It's about the systems you have in place not so much, you know, for him, not so much uh, what you want to achieve with your habits or not, not so much what you want to achieve with your behaviors, not so much about the weight loss, but it's about the systems you have in place. So it's about the, you know, 20 minute walk that you do every day and, and having your goal be doing that 20 minute walk every day or, or, you know, having your goal be getting, you know, three servings of vegetables with lunch and dinner, as opposed to the goal being losing 20 pounds in six months. And then that um, it, it's really focusing on those systems, on those processes, which are completely within our control, that is really, it's going to be most sustainable, you know. Um, so and that's just something, you know, as coaches, we have to keep in mind is, is where we're kind of putting our focus with our clients. Are we focusing exclusively on the end point of getting that weight loss of, you know, getting that six pack or whatever it is, or are we emphasizing what uh, changes we want our clients to make um, and emphasizing on that as being their goals. And I'll tell you, it's tough. I'm sure you can speak to this too, because clients, especially they're paying you, they want results. That's why they're paying you. Uh, so it is, it is difficult to, I guess, find that balance and, and 
being, you know, kind of encouraging them to focus on the process while at the same time they are paying you because they want results. Um, so it's kind of a, a tough, it, it can be tough to navigate as a coach, but again, we do know that, that focusing on those processes are what will lead to long-term success. Yeah. I always tell my clients, you can't control what you weigh on any given day. You can't control weight loss. All you can control are doing the things that might yield that result. And I think it's part of the art of coaching to kind of take that person's mindset that's very results driven and then turn them towards like more micro progressions of really small changes that you know compound over time. Um, I, and, and I think this is something that Kim Shog had said a couple of weeks ago to me on the show. And, and, and she said it perfectly. I totally agree is that if you're looking for changes in your body as the source of motivation and the validation of what you're doing, that it's working, man, that shit takes a long fucking time, like months. I mean, at best months, if not six months to a year. And if you can stay motivated that whole time without seeing changes, then great. But that's not how most people work. And if you focus on doing one more rep in the gym or five more kilos on the bar or, you know, your t your squat technique improving, I mean, that stuff happens on much more frequent timescales, like a smaller timescale. You can actually sink your teeth into that on a weekly basis. And that those small little steps forward, being able to latch onto that motivation-wise week to week, month to month, gives you those six months, 12 months transformations that we see all the time. And if you're so focused on something that happens on such a large time scale, like I just don't foresee and have not seen with my crop of clients that you can really like keep your focus and your motivation. If what you're thinking about and what you're getting excited about is six months, a year, two, three years away, it's just not like Olympic athletes are not thinking, maybe they are because they're just freaks in nature, but they're not thinking about the podium, right? They're thinking about today's training and today's workout and today's meals and, you know, next week's where, where they're supposed to be in their time trials and, and next month's tournament. And they're focused on, they're breaking that super large goal down into a lot of the process goals. And so I think that that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and something, as you were saying, this, that concept can really be applied to other areas of life too. You know, you know, something I do now is I, is I kind of like think about my fitness journey and stuff and I'm like, wait, this can also apply to my professional life or my business goals. You know, it's, you know, we may have a goal of financial freedom or, or getting a, a X number of clients in our business or something like that. Um, and it's really the same kind of thing applies where, you know, we're not going to, if, if we want financial freedom, that doesn't happen in a day. We're not going to be a millionaire next week, but it's, it's more making smaller um, process goals. So, you know, this month, uh, saving more than you spent. And, you know, that's something that we can do. And if you continue to do that over time, you will get that financial freedom. You'll, you'll be, you know, saving enough money. Um, you know, same thing with your relationships. It's just, you know, continuing to, um, you know, reach out to others, reach out to friends and family and put yourself out there for people. And if you do that consistently, you will find that your relationships get better. Um, so it's just about continuing to put in the effort and enjoying the process of doing it and seeing the meaning of the journey. And, you know, and oftentimes we find that once we get to our destination, it, it's like, the destination isn't necessarily all that great. Like it's not, you know, if, if achieving a 500 pound deadlift or something like that was easy, it wouldn't really be that fun. You know, part of it is putting in the hard work days and weeks and months and years to get there that makes the goal so great. So it's, it's, you know, it's it, putting in that effort makes it better in the end, in my opinion, it makes it more meaningful. Yeah, totally agree with that. We're going to hard pivot here because I know this is something that people are going to want to hear from you is this idea that carbs make you fat. I know we did a hard pivot there, but I want to talk nutrition. Yeah, I want to yeah, get yeah. I want to get a discussion around this going is that carbs make me fat. Like where does this fear of carbs, this assumption that carbs are in isolation, the problem and that eating carbs outside of everything having to do with the law of thermodynamics is independently a bad idea. Like where does that fear come from? So it's probably from a bunch of different places. You know, one thing I see in the nutrition space is people sort of uh, getting into these ideological camps, almost like it's like politics, like people, they're in the low carb camp and they are like low carb. If you're, if you're eating carbs, like, like that's wrong. And like, you know, or same thing with, 
you know, carnivore or some people who, who follow vegan diets might be very ideological in, in their way of things. And, and once we kind of take an ideological view of nutrition or anything else, um, it's, it's hard to look at things objectively. Um, now, obviously, well, it should be obvious is that no, carbs do not make you fat. They do not cause obesity. Um, you know, obesity is, is, is just, you know, a result of, of eat, like excess energy intake relative to en energy expenditure over a long period of time. Um, you know, actually, Kevin Hall has done a lot of great research um, where uh, basically he controls for like everything. It has uh, participants in a metabolic ward where their energy expenditure and energy intake are super, super closely regulated and measured as accurately as you can. And he does indeed find in those that it is energy balance that determines changes in body weight. Now, where it comes from, it, a lot of it is sort of just the ideological view of things. Um, we do also know that a fair number of people, particularly people who are maybe relatively sedentary or might have some insulin resistance, um, a fair number of people do well on low-carb diets. Um, for one thing, low-carb diets... Um, reduce, you know, if, if you're eating low carbohydrates, you're going to be eating less hyper palatable foods, right? Because, you know, foods like cookies, cakes, chips, stuff that are energy dense, have a fair bit of carbohydrate. So if you're restricting those, you're generally going to be eating a, a diet that's relatively low in calories. Uh, we also know that a diet high in protein and, and high in fat uh, suppresses appetite. I know low carb diets are just more can can be uh, very satiating. So what we see is that it's not uncommon for people who go on low carb diets to end up just eating in an energy deficit because um, because their hunger levels are low and they end up losing weight and they say, oh, it's the low carb diet. Keto is amazing and whatever. And it's not anything. It's not it's not because of insulin. You, uh, you mentioned the um, carbohydrate. I don't know. Well, I know off the air, we mentioned the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. I don't know if you mentioned it when you posited this question, but people talk about the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis being that, oh, like insulin is a hormone that stores fat and then uh, low carb diets will decrease insulin levels. And that's why you can lose weight on a low carb diet. Break, break that down a little bit more, because I, I think that there's a, a good group of the listeners that are going to and, and, and I want to kind of recap what you just said is that when I'm thinking about where that fear comes from, I, I'm, I kind of took some notes on what you said is like confounding variables um, where there's other things at play, right? Where it, I actually think that there's also like the minute you decide to go low carb is the minute you also decide to focus more on your nutrition. A lot of people are like, oh, I went low carb and it was the first time you did anything. It was the first time you focused on doing something. Um, and people who might go low carb do tend to have slightly higher protein. And so there are a lot of confounding variables. And then kind of in that same vein, there's like a correlation versus causation issue where it's, I went low carb and then I lost weight, but like you went low carb and then you were in lower, a uh, lower caloric state or, or actually in an energy deficit and then you lost weight. And then I think there's an actual misunderstanding of how insulin works. And so why don't you break down like, what is insulin? How is there a misunderstanding of how it works? And I, I, almost how the fuck are there so many smart people who still don't understand this? Yeah, so insulin is an anabolic hormone. I mean, it has a, a bunch of roles in the body, but one of which is shuttling nutrients into, into uh, cells, which whether that be shuttling nutrients into fat cells, muscle cells, you know, other cells, um, you know, that's one of its big roles. Obviously, blood sugar regulation plays very much into that. You know, we see... Um, Type 1 diabetics who don't have any insulin end up with, um, you know, hyperglycemia, really high blood sugar, and they obviously need to take exogenous insulin so they don't, you know, get hyperglycemic and die, you know what I mean? So, so um, insulin has a lot of very important roles in the body. Now, one of the insulin, what things insulin does is it does shuttle nutrients into fat cells. It does, you know, play a role in uh, lipogenesis. So, so um, you know, shuttling uh, free fatty acids or triglycerides into the fat cell, right? So it does have a mechanistic role there. So you will see uh, some people out there saying, well, if we just lower insulin, then we won't have obesity because insulin, you know, has the role of shuttling fat into fat cells. Um, you know, the problem with that 
is that when so so when you follow a low carb diet um you will see insulin get lower which means that um fat storage you know fat the capacity for fat storage goes down but you're also eating more more dietary fat as well so it kind of um balances out in that way and then it or if you're eating a high carb diet then you know i mean that capacity may be increased but you're also eating less dietary fat as well and at the end of the day um you know it, if you're eating in a calorie deficit the net fat burning versus fat storage is still going to be there's still going to be more fat burning there you know what i mean um because the capacity you know you know fat storage in and of itself isn't what um you know causes long-term weight gain or weight loss it's um total it's it's total you know energy balance fat gaining versus fat storage yeah over a period of time and um insulin plays just one role in that and if we look at research looking at people who follow low carb diets versus high carb diets with calories equated for uh generally we don't see differences or when protein and protein when uh, calories and protein are equated for we don't see uh real differences there and insulin also plays a big role in building muscle in fact if you look at uh bodybuilders who are not natural one of the things they do often do is uh take exogenous insulin and you generally don't see them gaining lots and lots of fat you know what i mean um so it it it's it's a mechanistic it's a it's a very sort of mechanistic view of things that doesn't really account for you know the whole picture I think you know, so it's, there's just it's it's a storage hormone, and it is what shuttles like nutrients into cells, fat cells, you know, glycogen stores. Like, um, and there's a misunderstanding that because it is a storage hormone, uh, that if we lower it, that we will store less, um, and that somehow we will bypass the law of thermodynamics when it's just not the case. Um, and I think that there's this wild like people who are proponents of the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity where if we it, it's insulin that's causing obesity it's this chronically elevated insulin if we drop insulin by lowering carbohydrates then people don't gain fat like like you just said that's not the case because in every study where they compare low carb and low fat protein and calories equated we see very similar uh, rates of fat loss or fat gain um protein also elevates insulin and that. whey protein yeah. elevates insulin the same yep. as white bread like there's yeah a lot of yeah. these low carb zealots man you you see them low carb zealot and and the carnivore it's like a hop skip and a jump away where these people are eating like oh, yeah. two three four five hundred grams of protein because you're carnivore like i've been keto man you eat a lot of protein like and i think people misunderstand sometimes traditional ketogenic diet for for clinical purposes is a low yeah. protein diet but for yeah. overall health if you're going to go Man, overall health, that's a subjective term here. But I think that for a lot of the proponents in the ketogenic space would be proponents of eating adequate amounts of protein far beyond the the recommended daily 0.8 grams per kg, whatever. Um, protein elevates insulin, man. Like, how are they missing this? How are people still saying that insulin is this devil and then being proponents of eating, you know, a gram per pound of body weight of protein? It makes no fucking sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, the, the protein point, that's a big one as well. It's that, yeah, like, unless you're eating a low carbohydrate, low protein diet, like a traditional ketogenic diet, um, you're still going to have like pretty high levels of insulin. Like you said, whey protein stimulates uh, insulin more than white bread. Uh, so it just doesn't really make sense on that level. And it also is possible to there, there, it is possible to store fat without the presence of the insulin, there is another enzyme in place that does that i don't remember the name of it but you know if you do have that excess of calories even with low insulin you you, you can still see fat storage um and, and it just at the end of the day if you have that influx of calories you are going to see that increased storage of fat you know you, it's you could try to keep insulin low but unless you're eating exclusively dietary fat you are still going to to have some insulin around and if you are eating in that energy surplus um, you, you are generally going to see some of that fat storage unless like all of it's coming from protein protein is, is there are ways that you can store the, the calories coming from protein, but it's, it's not it's as efficient. 
it's, it's inefficient. But if you're eating a very high fat diet, you know, dietary fat, and, and again, this isn't me saying I don't think low carb diets can be great. Low carb diets can work for a lot yeah, of people. You said that, yeah. Like I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's nothing. I'm not trying to bash low carb diets, but you know, we do have to understand, you know, if you take the me mechanistic view of it just being about insulin, well, if you're eating a lot of dietary fat, you also have a lot of triglycerides that are very easily stored into fat as well. Um, you know, so, so you're kind of, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense to get on that level of things. If you do rather, if you're just are eating the appropriate amount of calories that that sort of makes more sense and look at like, you know, I, I mean, there are certainly some athletes I'm sure there, I'm sure there are some great powerlifters, great bodybuilders who do low carb and they're great, but most high performance athletes generally eat high carbohydrate diets you know, and if we look at some of the athletes that have the highest carbohydrate intakes, it's endurance, endurance athletes. And they, how many, how many like endurance athletes do you see who have obesity? Like not, not that many, you know? So, so it's a good point. It just, it just doesn't really, it just doesn't really work. Yeah. Um, and it was, and, and, you know, I, and it's something that like, I, I used to, to subscribe to that. I used to, you know, I, I followed a ketogenic diet at one point or, or tried to at least I actually specifically, I followed a uh, carb backloading back in my early fitness days. So I bought into the whole, like keeping insulin low in the morning and then high at night. And, um, we just don't really have research to, um, support that. And I've said it several times. If you're listening to this and you find a low carbohydrate diet works for you, that's totally fine. Like to no nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, based on the research we have, based on the understanding of physiology that we have, uh, it's likely not due to insulin being, you know, a, a villain or anything like that. It's likely due to the fact that a low carbohydrate diet simply uh, satiates you more. Um, so you're able to eat in a calorie deficit. And, 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 and man, for the people that actually are, are following us through that from a mechanistic standpoint, like I applaud you, but I actually laugh because I think more people aren't thinking about that. I think they are thinking when I eat carbs, I weigh more the next day. I think people are just, are not like, oh, carb up, oh, insulin, insulin. You and I work with everyday people. I think more people are like, well, no, no, no. When I go out and I eat sushi, the next day I weigh more. And it's like, yeah man, that's, first of all, you do weigh more. You totally will. If you eat more carbs than you normally eat, not high carb period, but more carbs than you normally eat, you will you will store some water. I mean, for every, what is it? For every gram of glycogen stored, it's like three to four grams of water is also stored. Like, yep, yep, exactly. Uh, um, you're going to weigh more, but you're not going to gain or lose body fat by your 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 carbohydrate ratio. If, you, if you're up, yeah. you know, five pounds the next day from sushi, like, any of those pounds that are actually fat are going to have to come from being in an energy surplus, not from the fact that you ate more carbs. And I think more people, they just, it's twofold. One, it's this fear of, of water retention the following day after a high carb meal where people get afraid of carbs. They will restrict carbs for six straight days. Their weight will go down because they will lose that same water weight, right? You will, your body's storing less glycogen. It's also going to flush out all of that water. You'll weigh less. Yeah. All of a sudden this, positive feedback and it's and it's drastic right people go keto see you know five six seven eight nine ten pounds of loss in that first week man you're pissing out a ton of water like you're not losing yeah. more body fat and then you have one day where you eat carbohydrates and you're up five six seven pounds and that is what you remember you're like i went low carb i, I weighed less i ate one thing of one night of carbohydrates and i weigh more and i think the second thing yeah. is that something you had said previously is and i'm almost going to flip it on its head is that we often think that hyper palatable foods and these yummy foods and foods that we eat in excess are high in carbs. And now that they're not low in carbs, they like you said, I think you actually specifically said they have a fair bit of carbs. They totally do. Hyper palatable though, I think they had recently done a study. I just read in Alan Aragon's review, he was discussing that they tried to define hyper palatable and it came in three different forms. I'm gonna butcher it, but almost all of them was a combination of carbohydrate, sugar, salt, and fat. And that yep. hyper palatable yep. isn't high carb. It's not a high carb thing. Ice cream is not a high carbohydrate food. It, it definitely has a lot of sugar. It also has a ton of fat. Chips, uh, um, cake, like the cookies. Man, these things also have a ton of fat. Like this is not hyper palatable. Yep. What we think is like, oh, I'm going to go low carb. Man, what happens when people go low carb is they cut out cookies, cake, chips, all of that soda. 
and they cut calories and they start eating more satiating food. And so there's this crazy correlation causation issue. Um, but I think more people, I, I'm thinking of my clients and I hope they're listening right now. It's like, they're thinking, I didn't eat carbs for five days. I weighed less. I had one night of carbs. I weighed more. What else do I need to know? No more carbs. And it's yeah. just not the case. You're storing water and that's it. And and maybe you can speak to this mechanistically because I'm going to butcher it. But like, what is, and, and you can, I'm sorry if this isn't something you have readily at hand, but like the mechanism by which we're regulating that water and that fluid retention and how if we have more carbohydrates than we typically have instead of just having high carb, like why don't we see like Japanese people who are having a fuck ton more carbohydrates in their diet, like just blow up like water retention balloons. Like what is the mechanism there that allows them to kind of regulate that fluid regulation or retention? Right. Well, you, you hit on it pretty well. A lot of it is glycogen that, that, you know, glycogen for, for, you know, listeners who don't know, it's just our stored form of carbohydrate, uh, primarily in our muscles and our liver. So, um, you know, if we are eating a calorie deficit or if we're eating low carbohydrate, we'll generally uh, see those stores go down uh, just because our carbohydrate availability go availability goes down and each gram of glycogen does store along with it three to four grams of water. So, you know, you will see body water stores go down as well, you know, when you're on a low carb diet. And subsequently, if you've been low carb or low or relatively low calorie and you start eating more carbs again, you'll see the reverse Um you know, of that, just as you said. So you will see those acute uh, fluctuations in body water and um, glycogen. Uh, you know, beyond that, I mean, with fluid retention, I mean, that can also occur due to just, you know, fluctuations in dietary sodium as well. Um, so that's especially if someone goes out and they eat, they're thinking it's a really high carb meal. But oftentimes, you know, we go out to eat, it's, it's a high sodium meal, high salt meal. And that can cause some um, acute uh, fluid retention, which is fine, like goes away or whatever, but it's the transient. next day on the scale, yeah, transient. And the next day on the scale, though, that might show up as well. How so does it's that not work? something. How is that, how is that regulation a bit different? The, like from aldosterone or ADH, like how is that stuff happening where if I'm having, again, same argument, Japanese people eating like 10 grams of sodium a day and we're eating, you know, our RDI right now is like two grams. Like how are they? How is how does the body regulate that high amount of sodium? Right. So I don't have I don't have the my, my physiology textbook at hand, <laughs> so I don't want to butcher the exact processes. But you yes, know, we, so so I mean, generally speaking, well, first of all, I know you know you mentioned like the um, uh, the AI for sodium adequate intake uh, or to or tolerable upper limit rather, I believe is twenty four hundred milligrams for adults. Um, most of us eat more than that, more sodium than that, but, but, you know, people in Asian countries, uh, may, may eat even, well, well, at least, um, you know, you know, if you were to get, um, you know, Asian food, maybe in the U S it would be a lot higher in sodium. Uh, so one thing to keep in mind is that to some extent, it's sort of what our bodies are accustomed to. So if we are habituated to eating, nine grams of, of sodium per day. That's just what our bodies are accustomed to. Um, and, we, and we've adjusted to that. If you see these like big shifts in, in dietary sodium, then you may see some, some fluctuations in, in, you know, water retention and, and whatnot. So that can be some of the effect that you're referring to as well. Yeah. Your body's very smart. I mean, it, it will adapt to whatever you give it. And you, we see that across yeah. the board with dietary choices, we can survive on a wide range of of diets made up vegan to carnivore to low carb to high carb to you know pescatarian vegetarian i mean you name it the people are surviving and people are thriving on a wide range and i think it goes for the same thing where like if you give your body consistently a high carbohydrate diet like you are not going to be consistently retaining excess water and if you habitually eat a higher sodium diet like you're not going to habitually walk around bloated all the time and i have clients who are like yeah salt really doesn't doesn't agree with me or, you know, I, carbs really don't agree with me, man, just because you weigh more the next day does not mean those things don't agree with you. Actually, I might actually take it as a sign of, man, if you go out to one relatively higher sodium meal and you can't take your rings off and you're bloated like crazy and you're retaining pounds of water, like part of me is going to think that you should be regularly including a bit more salt so that one slightly higher meal isn't drastically, uh, uh, you know, throwing your body for a loop, so to speak. Um, your body's really smart, man. If you give it sodium on a regular basis, like and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that people need to double their sodium intake. All I'm saying is that your body is 
very adaptable. And if you do eat slightly higher sodium, you will not just permanently retain water. And the same goes for a higher carbohydrate diet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one thing that we do have to keep in mind is that our bodies need sodium, you know, um, and you know, if you are, if you are, if you do have hypertension, or you're at risk for hypertension, then definitely, uh, you know, reduce your sodium intake. But otherwise, I'm not aware of, you know, any evidence to indicate that, you know, including a little bit more salt would actually be harmful. You know, I find that that I add some salt to my vegetables and whatnot, it makes them a lot more tasty, it kind of neutralizes the bitterness uh, to them. So, you know, if, if you're in relatively good health, you don't have hypertension, you want to eat a little bit more salt. I don't really see any uh, major issue with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that most of it is, m- much of it might be a correlation with the types of food that are high in sodium. And that if mm-hmm. you're, you know, people, people are like, oh, the people who eat more sodium also have more obesity. It's like, okay, maybe, well, what oh, yeah. are they eating? They're maybe eating a fuck ton more calories. There's a lot more hyperpalatable, low satiety foods that these people are eating, high in calories, low in volume, low in satiety, that happen to also be high in sodium. And so we see a lot sure. of that correlation. Um, yeah, absolutely. Definitely, definitely something that, that I, I, I almost want to do a whole podcast on salt. So let's not, let's not, let's not ruin that just yet. But what I wanted yeah. to ask you is, okay, so you, you do a lot of um, disseminating the research so that people like me and that I can disseminate it to people like my clients. And I'm very yeah. appreciative of that. I love that there's that like kind of bridge structure to the person who does the research and then people who disseminate it all the way down so that people can actually digest it. Like what is some of the research that's either being done right now or maybe something that isn't being done right now that you'd like to see done that you're excited about? I would like to see more research on you know, weight neutral approaches to health and, 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 um, you know, intuitive and weight neutral approaches to health, um, you know, and, and how they fare compared to, um, you know, weight focused apo- uh, approaches and perhaps specifically looking at, you know, what populations might each approach be better for. Um, and, and there is, I mean, there has been some research on that. There was a systematic review that came out uh, and I, I featured it on my on my uh, social media. There was a systematic review, and maybe they did a meta analysis too uh, last year that looked at weight neutral approaches, and they did find that actually, um, even though they were weight neutral approaches, the weight loss outcomes in the weight neutral approaches and the weight loss approaches, I think it might have been uh, just among women as well, uh, but were like comparable, and a lot some of the health uh, improvements were actually better in the weight neutral. Um, uh, approaches. So I'd like research comparing those and specifically what populations um, might different approaches be better for. Because I do see kind of in the industry now you have people who, you know, are and, and weight neutral approaches can be great, um, you know, but you do have people who advocate for, you know, weight neutrality so strongly um, and against, you know, traditional, um, you know, counting like a, a quantitative nutrition so hard that you know i see people saying like hey like you know uh, tracking your calorie intake is disordered eating like and stuff like that you know i um you know i've had people like post on on my stuff like 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 you know like that it's either triggering disordered eating or whatever because it talks about macro counting which is you know frankly that's that's bullshit in my opinion you know i, I don't i don't you know we see so many people get so much success taking a quantitative approach to nutrition that i don't i think that i think that's a bit too far but at the same time, we have people who are, you know, more into the traditional, like sort of weight-focused, uh, quantitative approach of tracking macros and whatnot. And those are the people who say, like, oh, like intuitive eating, like, oh, like that, you'll just like eat a bunch of junk food and whatever, which is also bullshit, um, which I'm not going to get into now. So you kind of have people, sort of on both sides there, sort of making um, kind of shitty arguments at each other. And, and I think it would just be great. To have more research kind of putting these different uh, dietary approaches in perspective um, to, to, to just kind of really guide us as, as we guide our clients to, to help them uh, kind of figure out what may be best. Yeah, that would help a lot from a coaching perspective. I'd love to have a head start on what I think might work with the client. I think that that's the art of coaching, right? That's having a discussion with your client and trying to figure out what's best for them. And, and I agree on a lot of what you had said about the misunderstanding of intuitive eating and a lot of uh, how weight neutral approaches for the right people are far superior and for others are not the right move and quantitative approach may work better for others. And um, so I I would love to see that. I think that that would be 
I find that a lot of the answers I get from that question are things that might be hard to parse out and that are hard to set up in a study design. Um, how, how do you think that that might be able to be a study that's, that's set up? I think that just doing more, you think doing more studies across large populations and then, or is there some form of stratification that we can do to kind of like figure out uh, uh, some deductive reasoning as to how one person may respond to a specific approach? Okay, so as far as how to conduct a study like that, um, I mean, you could just just kind of continue to do research on on different approaches and, and then do like systematic reviews or made analyses of the general outcomes, or you could have large groups of people and randomize them to either a weight neutral or weight focused intervention or a quantitative versus um, a more intuitive eating intervention and have them sort of assess progress, however you want to assess progress and, and have them fill out qualitative questionnaires to assess what works for them. Um, but a lot of it, you know, if you are a coach, really comes down to having that open dialogue with your client um, and to kind of get an idea as to what works for them. You know, what brought them to you in the first place? What have they tried before? What are their general, what, what is it about nutrition that they may be struggling with? You know, is it someone that, that may have disordered eating behaviors? Well, then maybe tracking macros might not be the best thing in the world or, or you know, tracking weight, you know, it's probably not a, not a good idea for, for someone that maybe is in that area. You know, on the other hand, if someone does have is a really good place with their body image and is, is just, is, you know, fairly athletic and just wants to really hone in on their, their uh, athletic performance or has some very specific aesthetic goals, you know, then a macro based approach could be beneficial. And I do think that even if you do take a, qual a quantitative macro based approach, you can still include aspects of um, intuitive eating, such as, you know, following hunger signals, um, you know, um, you know, writing down where you are on a hunger scale before and after the meal and things like that. Um, so you can sort of integrate both as well. So it does come down to that uh, client coach relationship. Excellent. Excellent. I want to be respectful of your time. We're coming up on an hour here. I want to ask you a question that I've been doing a bad job with it, but I like to uh, end the podcast mm -hmm. with in the nature or in the spirit of the name of the podcast where optimal meets practical. What's something that might be optimal on paper? but isn't always practical at the individual level. And you can answer training, you can answer nutrition, you can answer coaching, anything you want. Optimal, but maybe not practical would, I mean, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is nutrient timing, uh, which is, you know, something where you, you probably hear that like, oh, you should eat protein, like, like right after you work out or whatever, um, you know, and there probably is an optimal timing approach of, of getting your protein after your workout and maybe getting a decent source of carbohydrate, you know, within a couple hours of your workout. Um, but I do see, and I'm sure you see this as well, people kind of hyper-focus on their nutrient timing where they're so focused on getting their protein within an hour, they feel like they failed, or they're so hyper-focused on getting, um, you know, 40 grams of carbohydrate, maltodextrin. And, and uh, <laughs> I remember um in college i was really into like i heard on the podcast that that leucine was really good and so like leucine as as you know is a, is a branch chain amino acid uh it's a component of, of protein and, and has an important role in muscle anabolism so i remember hearing like like i don't know who like on what podcast but they were mentioning that they supplemented with leucine so i bought leucine powder um and if you ever have had tasted leucine or really tasted any isolated um amino acids that just doesn't have any flavor in it it's the most fucking disgusting yeah, thing disgusting. oh my god powdered powdered leucine tastes like i mean it tastes like a, a mix of like chalk and and makes you feel like it's yeah. working though you're drinking it you're like yeah this stuff is disgusting I, it must be working it tastes like muscles. Uh, yeah it it tastes i don't know i don't know what the fuck it tastes like it yeah. just tasted like but but i remember like I don't know if it was like right before my workout or during my workout, I would have my bag of leucine and it was, and it was one of those bags that like, it didn't really have a zip thing. So I had to have another plastic bag to kind of have it. It was kind of powder, white powder all in the plastic bag. So I'd go to the bathroom, go into one of the stalls and then dry scoop leucine mid workout, kind of have powder all over me and then come out and finish my set. Meanwhile, I was, I was doing suboptimal training. Yeah, I was in a power deficit. Was not, yeah. Um, you know, but, but I got my, five grams of disgusting leucine and so yes um uh, timing and, and and probably supplementation to some extent with that um 
is there are optimal ways to do nutrient timing. I, I do not recommend dry scooping leucine during your workout. For the um, but but yeah, but you know, total calorie intake, um, and overall macronutrient intake and protein intake are way more important on a practical level. Totally agree with that. Love that. We could talk nutrient timing all day. Um, but I, I agree with that a thousand percent. I think I get uh, had a question on my Q and A yesterday. What's the optimal grams of fat in your post workout meal? And it was like, it's like we are so far away from the shit that matters. Um, like almost felt like weird answering the question, but obviously said that I was like, man. Well, first and foremost, having fat in your post workout meal. For the record, everybody, like not a bad thing. Like you're allowed to have fat in your post workout meal. Totally fine as long as protein is there you're going to be fine. Um, but yeah, I think that nutrient timing is definitely one of those things that's can, can, has an optimality to it and potential ways that are better doing it than others, but also doing it in that utmost optimality with every box checked and every T dotted and I's crossed, not really practical for the individual. So I love that. Really great. Um, all right, dude, listen, it was a pleasure having you on. I'm finally glad we got to connect, tell everybody where they can find you and uh, we'll sign off here. Yeah, man. It was a pleasure as well. Thank you for having me on. And really the best place would be Instagram at powerlifter dietitian, generally where I'm most active. And I do generally try to respond to, to all DMs there. So if there's anything I can help with, um, that's, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Excellent. And, and Dan's got a wonderful Instagram content. If you guys follow me, I know you guys will, will love Dan's stuff. So appreciate you having you on, man. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.